All right, welcome everybody. We're here for another episode today of Confessions of a Keyboardist, and I'm with John Maddock. Welcome, John. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm <laughs> really happy to be here. I'm so glad that you could be here, and uh, I'm, I mean, frankly, I was just really excited um, when you when you agreed to come, and you know, I've, I've known you for I guess maybe a year and a half, maybe. Um, met you at Allowed Jams, mm-hmm. pretty sure. Right, right. And um, we always would kind of uh, bond because we were um, the side keyboardists. Um. <laughs> and schlepping gear together. <laughs> Actually, you would let me use yours most of the time, so thank you for that. Sure. But, um, yeah, and, and you sent me a website that you got going. How long have you been doing that? Well, I have a website called KeyboardSuccess.com. And the premise of it is that uh, I have a lot of experience playing and lugging around classic, analog, and in the case of the Hammond V3s, you know, electromechanical instruments, and and getting them all over the world in flight cases, and and the uh, the gigantic job in itself that that is, but also in the last several years using my laptop. I have uh, used uh, the virtual uh, digital versions, uh, counterparts of those instruments. So on my um, website, I compare, you know, I have the experience of having played, quote unquote, the real instruments with the digital analog versions of them, their counterparts, and compare one with the other. Uh, Obviously, the beautiful thing about having all these instruments in your laptop doing the playing the digital software versions is that you're not lugging, for an example, a Hammond B3 in a flight case is nearly 600 pounds. So right off the bat, you know, you're not <laughs> lugging a 600 pound animal to, uh, to gigs. Wow. But and, having, and you have done that. Oh, I have, yes, for many years. Yeah. What's a flight case for a B3 look like? Um, it looks like a gigantic rectangular um, box that you could live in if need be. <laughs> if you had a little door, you could, it could be the gnome house that you climbed into. And then similar cases for the Leslies. Um, but if you have a vehicle with a ramp, having them in a flight case suddenly makes them easier. Because one guy at each end, boom, rolls right into the mm. ramp. Okay. And then I was lucky enough to play for major artists who had tractor trailers and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, at that point, you had to go there with flight cases. And I know for them, it made it a cinch, you know, down the ramp into the truck, yeah. onto the next place. Did you buy a flight case for your... Did yes, you, I did. And how much did that cost? Uh, Do you remember? In the 90s, <laughs> <laughs> which was like midway through my career, um, in the 90s, a flight case cost about $900. Wow. Yeah. And who made them? Uh, in my case, it was Carlo Cases, David Three, which was down on Music Row, and um, what is now the uh, one of the Master Phonics buildings. But uh, yeah, those guys, there was a company called Carlo Cases, and for... 30 years, you know, for a million country acts and many, many rock acts, they built all their flight cases. They were the go-to wow. guys. And David Three was the main engineer, designer, builder there. And he was always very kind to me. And um, he would always, I'd come strolling in and he goes, okay, John, you know, 
what monstrosity are we building now? <laughs> I once had a 38-space vertical rack that he built. And um, it was taller than a refrigerator, you know. And, Whoa. Uh, yeah. Um, and you were putting all these things in there to make everything sound great, I'm, go I'm going to assume? Well, um, in those days, it was before the dawn of multi-timbral synthesizers. And it was the very beginning of rack mount uh, synthesizer versions of the keyboard instruments. Okay. So, uh, plus, it was before the era of uh, powered speaker cabinets. So the bottom part of the rack would be power amps for my monitors, okay. and then there would be a mixer. I had like the, one of the very first 1604 Mackie mixers that I got directly from the hands of Greg Mackie, and uh, and then so that took like another seven spaces, you know. Okay. And then it was power conditioners and voltage regulators, and then about seven or eight uh, rack mount um, synthesizers, and. Uh, and wow. then, of course, I had to have a router for the MIDI to make everything cooperate with each other with one or two keyboard controllers. So, yeah, it was sort of the Star Wars of, a, <laughs> of gear, like who had the more gigantic, you know, death ray rack, you know. <laughs> you have a picture of that? Uh, uh, from, from that, I went to uh, two 16-space racks side-by-side side in a parallel okay. break when I went out and did Dirty Dancing. But no, I... To get to the chase, no, I don't have pictures of them, <laughs> I don't think. I can't. Maybe I do. Okay. Uh, I'll, I would have to look it up. Wow. So you have hands-on experience with many, 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 many pieces of audio gear. Yeah. Well, particularly keyboard gear. And, and I've witnessed the evolution of literally going from the quote-unquote real versions of that, like literally lug lugging around, you know, acoustic pianos and Hammond organs and all these synthesizers and electric pianos to the synthesized versions of them, the hardware, to now literally one little keyboard and a laptop. You know, and I <laughs> kind of lived through that arc. And that in so many ways is what my uh, website is about. Mm -hmm. You know, um, comparing quote unquote the real versions of those with the uh, digital versions of that. And, and that was, that's been a lot of fun. Um, I was looking through, you know, this morning, and I saw that um, you you looked at accordions, um, mini moog, clavinet, Hammond organs, um, Wurlitzers, Wurlitzers, mm -hmm. anything else? Um, is there more to come too? Well, yeah, there is. Uh, never one to let an opportunity get by. <laughs> I, I strayed out of the keyboard world just for a minute. I was at the NAMM show in the summer, and as a kid growing up, I loved to see hard rock bands, and the bass players would always have Ampeg SVTs, you know, just huge speaker cabinets with a 300-watt top that had a 6, 6L6, no, 6, 6550 power tubes in them, 300 watts RMS tube, which was really loud. And, and there was a famous bass player from Buffalo, New York, who played in a band called Talus and then went on to become a rock star on his own named Billy Sheehan. And I used to see Billy Sheehan as like a freshman in high school with these hard rock bands. And he had three Ampeg SVTs. And then I also followed the careers of the guys in the uh, Wrecking Crew, the famous studio musician guys out in LA. And the bass players in those bands used um, an Ampeg flip top, a um, 
a B10 and a B15. So getting back to it, I'm at the NAM show and there's the Ampeg booth with these new releases of these great classic amps and I'm a huge fan of them. And I'm talking to the guy at the NAM show and he says, you know, we have the virtual versions of these amps now. And I said, well, I'm writing this blog about virtual versions of keyboards. So for a year, they have given me access to the Ampeg uh, software recreations of the SVT and the uh, Ampeg B15. So we've been using them in the studio on the, on the music we make. And I wrote a blog about those amps because it was sort of down my alley, you know, the recreation of a classic tube instrument with a software version of it. And it's really been a lot of fun uh, to use that new software and recreate those sounds digitally. And so we had a lot of fun with it. And I got to visit with famous bass player friends of mine and talk about, you know, what that was like. Wow. So this is branching out from mm -hmm. not only just keyboards, but to other uh, instruments. What, what's your impression so far? I mean, uh, I, that's probably such a huge question. Uh, how do you answer that question? I mean, it, um... All I can say <laughs> is, I don't know what my impressions are, but from a completely selfish perspective, it's really been fun. Because uh, it allowed me to go back and revisit, you know, to kind of uh, relive my misspent youth and have some fun with the whole thing and remember what it was like. And uh, also, you know, I started out playing accordion as a little kid, so which is one of the reasons I wrote wow. about accordions. And I have kind of a humorous situation. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, quite literally the land of ice and snow. So at age four, I was already out with my older brother shoveling snow, making a few extra bucks. And then we're in this narrow alleyway in a very urban setting in Buffalo, uh, shoveling snow. And in the house next to me, um, I can hear a guy practicing the accordion. And I'm four years old, and I'm just kind of like entranced, you know, like, wow. and it, it sounds so great. And I'm in this narrow acoustic space where you hear it maybe, you know, accented a little bit, you know. And, uh, and I'm, of course, you know, I want to be in there because I'm out here shoveling snow. And uh, I went home to my mother, and I said, Mom, I want accordion lessons. And she said, well, if by next year you can read, not music, but read, a, you know, books better, print then will get you an accordion and accordion lessons so that was motivation to work hard already at four years old and when i was five true to their word they got me this tiny little accordion and an accordion teacher and i started playing accordion and in addition to keyboards i've played accordions all this time and i happen to be certain that i am an optimist because my accordion has a flight case built by Carlo Cases. You know, a heavy-duty flight case that I can put it on airplanes. And I have taken it on trips and gigs and so on. And, I saw that uh, on your blog, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I do have, in addition to Hammond organs and all those other instruments and whirlies and mini moogs and stuff, I real have, have a heartfelt affection for the accordion. Wow. So, um... Okay, so, but, but if anybody wants to check out your study of the bass amp, that's on your website, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so would you, let's, well, let's go back to, so at four years old, you start um, wanting to be a 
wanting to play a musical instrument. Mm -hmm. And the first um, desire was accordion. Well, it was the accordion because maybe, uh, you know, freezing my little rear end off out in the snow and listening to some plate and longing to be in there <laughs> might have had something to do with it. Um, but yeah, and I heard that instrument and then my parents found this accordion teacher somehow his name was Gordon Poplar and he was a very good teacher you know and he could be kind of strict you know uh, he was very proper like when you went to take lessons with him he was already dressed up like he was in pressed pants with a pressed white shirt and a tie mm -hmm. and groomed perfectly mm -hmm. and it sort of set a serious a setting as if we're serious yeah you know, this is something we're gonna do you know and he started teaching me to read music very early on, which has been a really helpful thing. I'm not a great sight reader, but I can sight read, and it was very helpful over the years. Do you um, read treble clef with accordion lessons, or is it? A yeah, you read treble clef and you read bass clef with the buttons on the left on the le in your left hand, and um, and the buttons on the left hand are set up. Uh, in a circle of fifths so as you go up and down the buttons you know it's C G D A E and so on going down and then from the main buttons if you go one over before the last row it goes up a third and then from the buttons it also goes out chordwise like C C major C minor C dominant seven C major seven so you can both play uh, bass notes and chords with the left hand while playing chords with the right hand Wow. Yeah. And uh, I know I know very little about accordion. I mean, I've, I've probably held three or four and messed around with them a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, mm -hmm. okay, so that's a lot of options um, that are presented to you very early on, immediately, I guess. Right. It, chords. Right. I'm struck with, you, you start to learn chords immediately. Right. Absolutely. And then I, I, no one got around to telling me that the accordion wasn't exactly the coolest instrument in the 1960s. So I just thought, yeah, this is great, you know? <laughs> and I'm learning to, besides taking proper lessons, I'm listening to the television and I'm listening to the radio and I'm playing along with the radio and along with the television. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I'm playing like, you know, and then the early 70s started, like I'm playing Chicago songs and, and, you know, and rock songs and all this stuff on the accordion. And no one, I knew some, it kind of occurred to me that people were looking askance at me like, what is this, you know? But I just thought, yeah, you know, I'm rocking out, you know? And, um, but I did want to play the piano and... All my, this is in Buffalo? All this is in Buffalo, New York. Okay. And my parents were very encouraging, but, but very blue collar upbringing. And I had three other brothers, so finances were limited. So I said, I really want to play the piano. And my parents could not buy a piano, but they found someone who was literally throwing out a piano. It wasn't in very good shape. And <laughs> Sweet. The, the guy across the street had a pickup truck, and my three brothers and the friend across the street and my father, we drove to this upright piano, somehow muscled it into the back of the pickup truck, muscled it into my house. And when you're a kid, you don't realize that some things can't be done. Like, no one ever says... Oh, that you can't do that. Yeah. So I, at first, did not realize that the piano, the entire piano, was off by three steps. It was in such horrible condition that the tuning had gone down three steps. 
Okay. No one ever told me that. Half though. steps or whole steps? Whole steps. Whoa. Yeah, okay. it was really <laughs> radically tore up out of tune plastic or, <laughs> you know, every, keys tops were coming off and so everything like that. if you're playing in C, you're actually, it sounds like F sharp. If you're playing in C, you're actually, it sound, sounds like A minor, like A. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. All right, so, okay. Right. So, but anyway, <laughs> so I, at one point, I put the accordion on, and I'm playing the buttons with the left hand, and that's when I suddenly realized that the accordion is in C, you concert know, proper pitch. concert pitch, and the piano is not. Okay. But when you're a little kid, no one says, oh, you can't do that. So I was literally playing concert pitch with my left hand and playing down a third with my right hand. Now, if you ask me to do that and put a gun to my head, I could not do it. But when I was seven... Unreal. I could do it. Like, yeah, you just, you just do you, it. Are you saying you played accordion and piano at the same time? Or, yeah, okay. and the piano was three steps off, okay. but I was playing the same notes. I got you. And yeah. at the time, I just thought, you're a little kid, and you just do these things. Yeah. Now, though, I've had all this training, <laughs> and not for a million dollars and the threat of death could I do that again. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. I love it. Did you know the names of the keys on the piano? Was oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you still, just yeah. play, we're playing in two different keys. Right. Splitting your brain right in two. Right. <laughs> That's pretty great. That's, that's pretty great. So, uh, and uh, and then from there, um, you never know what these skills are really going to come in handy for you later you, on. Too, you never know. <laughs> and then from there, uh, I was taking courting lessons, and then I met this guy. My parents helped me find him. This guy named Jimmy Wozniak, and he was he was, you know, John Lord from Deep Purple rolled with Jimmy Smith and Groove Holmes and Jack McDuff of the Hammond B3. And he was just a wonderful teacher. And he knew everything about blues and rock and, and Hammond organs. And, oh, I was, by then I was about 12, 11, and I wanted to know everything about that. was When I heard that instrument and I saw people rocking out, I thought that was, like, the coolest thing on the planet. <laughs> uh, Where's the first time you heard one? Do you remember? Um, this is how great my parents were. Um, Jimmy would play gigs at, in saloons around Buffalo. And my father always liked to have a cold beer and go to a saloon. He thought that was just a fantastic idea and loved music. So he would tell us, like the bars that Jimmy was playing. And my father and I would go to these nightclubs and see Jimmy Wozniak and his band. And Jimmy played B3s and C3s, and he played left hand, uh, left foot pedal bass and left hand bass, and he played in trios and quartets, and um, with a singer. and And I heard it live, and I'm sitting there, right next to the B3 and the Leslie, and you're feeling the low end of the B3 through the through the floor through your feet, you know. Oh yeah. And I was just, man. That is, you know, and he's playing these swings tunes and, and blues tunes and then pop songs. And you're just going, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard, you know. And this instrument has so much soul and the tubes are distorting, you know. And, um, and you're, just, you're just loving it, you know. Yes. And then from there I started hearing, you know, rock records with it on too, you know. And then I heard like Whiter Shade of Pale and then... Uh, and then Jimmy turned me on to all the great jazz 
blues organ players, Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, Groove Holmes. And then, of course, I, um, I heard um, Mad Dogs and Englishmen with Leon Russell playing piano and Chris Staten playing electric piano in B3. And that, I lost my mind when I heard that. I just, <laughs> oh, that, you know, because Leon Russell and Chris Staten, that just, you know, took me to another planet. So, um, well, you, your dad's supportive. My parents. <laughs> loved music. Loved music. Both of my parents were very supportive. Neither one of them played an instrument. I have three other very accomplished brothers who are not musicians either, but they all volunteered to be my road crew, you know, looking gear all over Buffalo at the Aww. time. They were great guys, and they loved going to the high school dances and parties with us, you know. You were in a band and stuff. Already. Yeah, I was in a band, like, by the time I was in 7th, 8th grade, you know, playing really? high school dances and CYO parties and stuff like that. According to you? No. Looking around, uh, well, this is where we get into the funny part of the story. My teacher, Jimmy had probably like five or six B3s and C3s and Leslie's. And he was always hiding them from creditors <laughs> and ex-wives and everything. <laughs> and so I had a C3 and a 122, one, a C3 and a 145 Leslie for a couple of years. And uh, my friends would come over and we'd muscle this into the back of my parents' 1969 Chevrolet Suburban and go out and play gigs. And, um, a C3? No, an M3. Which oh, was an a M3. Okay, one. I was going to say, yeah. how in the world would that fit? Yeah, um, it wouldn't fit in a... In okay. a um, okay, an M3. Yeah, the M3 would fit. And uh, Is and that what Booker T plays? Booker T, very, very good. The legend of Green Onions is that Booker T played an M3 without a Leslie, and the M3 had a... Uh, I think a 15-inch speaker, maybe a 12. I'm pretty sure it's a 15-inch speaker. And the bottom of the console portion of the organ. And the legend has is that they put a mic there, and he played Green Onions with that. No Leslie, no nothing, just, just the organ with the, little, with the speaker on it. Very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, and, so uh, it weighs a little considerably less than a B3. Considerably less. Two hundred pounds, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was anyway. about, about 250 pounds. Okay. But... Then after that, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was playing nightclubs all the time, like five, six nights a week. Really? And, yes. And get this, my mother, for $4,500 in like 1973, my mother co-signed a loan of 40, I think it was $4,300 for a Hammond B3 O Leslie 122. And, oh, mom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was, by then I was working all the time. It was a three-year loan, and I paid it off in about 18 months. And, uh, and I was gigging all the time with that. And that was, you know. But you, you thought I, you were hot stuff, didn't oh, you? Oh, man. I was having the time <laughs> of my life. You had to have been. I was. Um, okay, so what kind of band? I mean, is um, it a rock and roll band? Um, Must have been. Uh, at at okay. first, it was like a lounge bar band, and I was playing left-hand bass um, and a little bit of pedals, but mostly left-hand bass. And you're doing this all by ear? Yeah. I mean, it was it was pop songs of the day and soul songs of the day of the 70s, you know. Are you using like a... you have a turntable, and you're just learning stuff off the records? Yep. Yep. We had turntables. Um, we were... I was so old that I had a turntable. 
you know. And about, oh, I've had them. Yeah, and now I only walk with a walker. No. <laughs> <laughs> but but I guess what I'm saying is like you had to learn these songs off of. I mean, that was not easy to get a song right. off of a. Yeah, and and you just scratch record. up a lot of records, moving the needle around, you know. But that's that's how we learn songs. And I also, when I went on the road, I took a turntable and. I took a stereo with two speakers and a turntable with me on the road and lugged it from hotel to hotel in the city to the city. Oh, yeah. And, and a collection of LPs. And just thought, I was set up in the hotel rooms. I thought, this is fantastic. <laughs> I, was just, I was thrilled to death to be there. Yes, um, yes. Who were your favorite people to listen to? Some of, your, some of the albums that you remember from that stage. Well, a uh, big influence was, uh, uh, yes, cl- uh, uh, a roundabout, the the roundabout album, mm-hmm. and uh, and close to the edge, and uh, Brian Auger, and the Oblivion Express, and um, uh, Keith Emerson in those days, you know. But I was still really enjoying, you know, all the um, the famous organ players, you know, uh, Jimmy Smith, Groove Holmes, and uh, and plus. In Buffalo, New York, there were a lot of other really great piano players and B3 players. There was a guy in a band called The Raven, Jimmy Colleri, and um, man, just the most distorted, growling, screaming B3 of all time. I really tried to emulate that. And um, uh, Jimmy lives in uh, Ojai, California now, and I understand that his son... Uh, played in the Wallflowers with Jacob Dylan for many years. Uh, Interesting. So, uh, you know, I loved all those guys. And, of course, I heard John Lord with Deep Purple. And that was, like, life-changing, you know. Because he was playing, for a long time, he didn't use Leslie's. He had his B3 setup, actually a C3 setup. B3s and C3s are the same thing electronically, mechanically. They're just in a different furniture cabinet um, and the C3s were eclect- were more popular in, in England based on their looks and the B3s were more popular in the States right. based on their looks right. anyway but John Lord was playing a C3 through a Marshall stack and it was the biggest screaming <laughs> grindiest sound in the world and, and I can tell you that you know for a 15 16 year old guy you hear that and you go yeah, that's the greatest thing I ever heard, <laughs> you know. And so I did try to emulate that stuff to sound a lot too. And so, with the, did you get that amp? You, no. Uh, what, what I do you mean emulate? <laughs> um, what I did was I heard how grindy and screamy and distorted it was. So they used to make these things at the time. It was like you would pull out. The 6550 power tubes in, in your Leslie. Okay. And you put these little plugs on top of it, hooked up to another tube, and then you put the 6550s back down on top of it, and it overdrove the living crap. <laughs> it made your Leslie like three times louder. Okay. And like seven times more distorted. Yeah. And if you're trying to get a rocking, gritty organ sound, that was the trick. You know, and it worked. It definitely worked. Suddenly, you know, like you're giving guitar players a run for their money with this P3. You're you're playing loud, you know. Gotcha. And once again, by then I'm like maybe 
17, 18, you're going, yeah, this is the greatest. I tried to get Murph Wonka to tell me how to do that uh-huh. on this Leslie that I was playing mm-hmm. in a, a rock opera. And he said, don't you dare do that. He said, <laughs> I, just, I just made... Yeah, I just made John do a spit take. <laughs> here, let me, his let me let me clean things up while we're here. In case you're listening, I'm on my knees now, cleaning up coffee off the floor. I just made him do a spit take, but no, seriously, he said, "Don't you dare do that." And uh, he said, oh. "I'll I will equip that organ with a distortion pedal that you can, uh, you know, you can." Um, you can use. They do that now, right? And it, it sounds great, actually. Well, um, let me just say that Murph is <laughs> Murph is on the right track with that because um, Murph is definitely on the yeah. And, and it, it, you should know, folks, that not only did I get coffee on the floor and the piano bench, the actual phone that we're recording has coffee that leapt from my mouth here. Um, I love it. Well, we should be clear, Murph Wonka, who we're d- discussing is the Hammond guy in Nashville. Um, he has Nashville Pro Hammond or Nashville Hammond Pro. And he... I got my... When I got my C3, mm-hmm. he did all the work on it for me. Good and for you. I've used him for years to help me with all kinds of right. organ issues. Right. He is the repair guy, the rental guy, the go-to guy in Nashville for organs. And... I get where you're coming from. What he's saying is the truth. <laughs> um, so, to, you know, to have a distortion pedal in the organ to recreate that distortion, great. But, you know, in the uh, Jurassic era of rock and roll that I came out of, the only way to get that distortion was to simply overdrive it, like with a guitar, and to drive the amp too hard, you know, to boost the signal so the tubes in the amp distorted. Um, and... To be clear, it was not good in any way for your Leslie's. It was horrible for your Leslie's. But at that age, you don't care because it just sounds so good, you know? Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and, uh, so then I'm doing all that stuff. I'm playing, you know. Are you funding guys to, who, can, uh, who also want to play the same, you know? Oh, yeah. And so it's yeah. creatively a yeah. lot of fun and... A lot of fun. Gotcha. And I was younger, but I met some older guys who had a lot of experience. And luckily, instead of taking me down the garden path, they kind of looked out for me playing in nightclubs at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very lucky in that way. And um, uh, and I left high school early, but I managed to graduate and get out of high school early. Went on the road age 17 playing bars on the road, you know, and, and having the time of my life. Wow. And I saved up some money, and my parents made me the deal that only parents would make you. They bought my van for me for more than it was worth. And between the money I had saved up and a partial scholarship, uh, I was able to go to the Berkeley School of Music in Boston. And How old were you then? By the time I got to Berkeley, I was almost 21. And for some reason, I felt, even though now it's ridiculous that you would think you're old at 21, for some reason, I felt like I was behind the curve age-wise to be starting college. Um, But I went to Berkeley, and I graduated. I did seven nonstop semesters, fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, summer, fall, graduate. 
uh, and I had the time just being in Boston in the late 70s, uh, a young guy, just a fantastically creative city and a great music school where you're doing nothing but music and you're seeing music every night and you're studying with terrific people. And, you know, I've, I've been stupidly lucky in my life and that was one of those moments. And um, What made you want to go there? How did you first hear about it? Um, there is a guitar player named Paul Vipiano and he and I, in our very early teenage years, played in a band together. And Paul has gone on to have an extremely successful studio career in Los Angeles. He, like one of the main number one calls guys for playing on film scores and so on, because he's such a fantastic, not only does not only have great chops, but he's a great reader. And so he has played on many, many famous film scores, and he's also the guitar player for the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and he's the guitar player for the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra, conducted by John Williams. Uh, and Paul and I were childhood, wow. early friends, and Paul uh, went to Berkeley right out of high school. And so I heard about it, you know, and he would come home from school and tell me what the experience was like. And I said, yeah, that's, I got to have that experience. Okay. Um, but I needed to save up some money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, expensive uh, school. Very expensive school. The humor, it's humorous now. You know, when you say something is expensive, it's all relative to the time and the situation. When I graduated from Berkeley, I owed $8,000 in 1980. Yeah. And so maybe $8,000 now would be $25,000, something like that. Um, now I meet people who graduate from Berkeley, and I am very concerned about this, who owe $50,000. Yeah. You know, and they're starting out their career in the music business. And I find that very worrisome. I'm very concerned for people starting out in the music business who owe that kind of money. Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, I had a combination of a scholarship, and my parents bought my van at a, at a very overpriced <laughs> fee that they were nice enough to do, and they my parents couldn't pay a ton of tuition, but they helped. And I always had gigs all the way through college. I worked, you know, sometimes five nights a week, sometimes just one or two nights a week, but I always worked. I yeah. could play gigs, you know, in Boston, played lounges and parties, and I went out and played with bands. And I managed to muscle my Leslie and B3 into my dorm room in college. And I would take it out on gigs. That is, that is so great. You know, I would literally take it up in the dorm, up the elevator to, to the seventh floor, and jam it into my room. A B3? A Hammond B3, yeah, and a Leslie, yeah. And now we're talking 400 pounds. 420, yeah, yeah. 425? Yeah, this was before flight cases, so a B3. For those who don't know, a B3 without a flight case on dollies is 425 pounds. Yeah. And the Leslie is about 180 pounds, you know. And I had it on strap-on dollies in those days. Um, but once again, it sounds hard, but I was having the time of my life. I was loving it. I mean, what's not to love, you know? Yeah. And uh, When you get there? Pardon are me? You, well, when you get to Berkeley, mm -hmm. um, are you... So, what what program did you study? Originally, I was in the when I first started there, they, uh, in the Jurassic era of education, uh, they only had three majors, which was performance, teaching, or composition, and I was a composition major. But around the end of my fifth semester, 
they branched out and had more majors. But they had one major that was literally called just a general music education major. And I looked at my credits and I talked to my counselor and I realized that I was like, had, you know, within two semesters, I would have enough to graduate. And for those of you considering going to college, there's almost no one in music who gives a flying flip if you were a composition major or a performance major. You know, you went to music school and you graduated. Congratulations. You know, we believe in you. Or we don't. <laughs> Whatever. Right. Um, so I realized that within two semesters I could graduate. And, you know, and I was running low on funds, but I absolutely wanted to graduate. And so I have a general education degree from Berkeley. Uh, gotcha. But no, no one has ever said... When you were at Berkeley, say, you know, what, you know, no, you went there and you studied and, you know, you learned some things. And I think that's sound advice. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of things I ask um, regarding education mm -hmm. are for, with my 25 students in mind. Right. You know, what, what is going to be something that's going to help them. Mm -hmm. So basically what you're saying is the experience of just being in that town and being around those musicians. Right. Was the most valuable aspect of it. Absolutely. Being around... All those musicians, Boston has a thriving music scene with many, many good musicians. And all day long, where Berkeley was, uh, two blocks in one direction was Boston Conservatory. Two blocks in the other direction was New England Conservatory. And literally down the street was the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And if you had a college ID, whatever tickets weren't sold day of symphony, you could buy with a college ID for $2 a ticket to see the Boston Symphony was Seiji Ozawa at the time. So I saw the Boston Symphony maybe like 30 times. I mean, two bucks, you know, and you could buy one seat and sit and watch Seiji Ozawa conduct the symphony. Yeah. Those type of experiences were priceless. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, no one wants my advice, but here's my advice if you're a young college student considering going to music school. Yeah. I would advise you, yes, you should go to college to learn music. But if you're considering doing that, go to almost many, many, many junior colleges, you know, community colleges have great music programs that you can get your a really sound uh, extended education in music very affordably. I strongly recommend that you can do that where you get a good education, you know, on a college level for the most affordable way possible, you know, and then... If you want to go on for your bachelor's, um, find a, a, a good, you know, state school, you know, really in the music business, uh, in music business is very tough supporting yourself and provide, earning a living and providing for your family. So you want to have as little debt as possible. So go to a good state college and wrap it up there and then go to New York or L.A. or Boston or London and I mean this, go suck up and grovel to really great successful musicians and literally offer to be their apprentice, offer to lug their gear from session to session, uh, help them make copies if they're, you know, writing their charts and getting everything organized and hang with them and you will learn priceless things. And I do not recommend that you, if you're going to be a musician, you come out of college with gigantic debt. That's a t terrible idea. Uh, when you first start working as a musician, it's everything you can do to eat and keep a roof over your head. Um, 
until you get the ball rolling and then you can do more. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. No, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I, I was, you probably could do that in Nashville too. You know, Nashville State has an excellent music program and a technical program for like audio engineering and uh, computer software music and all that stuff. Very, very good. Uh, in the state of Tennessee, if you have a grade point average above, I think it's a B or above, uh, your college education on the junior level is nearly free. And you get a very, very good education there. And then from there, um, MTSU, right down the road in Murfreesboro, um, in relative terms, has an affordable, very good master, or pardon me, bachelor's program. And by the way, while you're doing this, you're in Nashville. Yeah. You know, um, literally home to some of the greatest musicians on earth. You need to go out and see them and do the hang. And don't be afraid to, you know, without being obnoxious, a little bit of sucking up and say, hey, can I see you play? Can I be of service to you? Can I learn something, you know? And um, if they turn you down, pretend you never talk to them and ignore them. And But some will help you and you'll learn about the music business, priceless things. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, now we're one more time off the soapbox. There you go. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so, okay, so you graduate from Berkeley. I graduate from Berkeley, and uh, this is great. This is, a, or this is an early 80s rock and roll bar band story. Um, I'm in Boston, and I'm about to graduate, and by now I'm out of the dorm, and I'm living in, in this ratty but very, very cheap apartment with three other guys in um, Cambridge, uh, in between Harvard and MIT. And uh, I'm about to graduate, and a friend from Buffalo, New York, that I knew as from earlier days, calls me up and says, I will drive my van to Boston and pick you and your Hammond gear up and bring you back to Buffalo. And this is like the classic story of the time. He goes, I have a sound system and I know an agent. And if you will come, I'll pick you up and bring you back to Buffalo. We'll rehearse in my basement for two weeks and go out and start playing gigs. And at the time, you know, like, you know, yeah, Seiji Ozawa wasn't about to retire from the Boston Philharmonic. You know, so I'm like going, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, you know. We, true to his word, we went to his house, set up, found two other guys, rehearsed for about two weeks, and left and went on the road playing bars nonstop for two years. Literally pretty much did not come home. Oh, wow. We played hotels and saloons and... What was uh, the name of this band? The name of the band was High Life. Okay. And we were playing hotels and saloons and, and I'm living in hotels pretty much nonstop for two years and lugging around all this gear and loving every minute of it. <laughs> Making good money? Make, well, yeah. I mean, in the sense that it was 1980 and I'm making about $400 a week cash and I have no expenses. Right. None. I mean, my college loan was very easy to pay, the monthly installments on it, and um, didn't have a house, didn't have a car, lived for free in hotels with this rockin' band. Right. And I saved up, I think I saved up $3,800. I left that band, served notice after two years, rented a rider truck, with used lawn sale furniture and all my gear and my beat up upright piano and drove into Nashville and did not know 
anybody. I knew no one. 1982? 1982, February of 82. Okay. And, uh... Lawn I, furniture, did you say? No, like yard sale furniture. Yard, old, oh, oh, old oh. beat up furniture. I gotcha. And I drove... Gotcha. <laughs> I, I slept on the front bench seat of this, of this rider truck. And I drove for three days, and I drove around until I found an apartment in Sylvan Park, a neighborhood in Nashville, where I could... Uh, and I had, you know, like $3,800 in cash on me. and oh, That was so scary. Yeah. <laughs> and I found this uh, one half of an apartment of a duplex in Sylvan Park in Nashville. And the guy said, I said, I'll take it. And so I signed the lease. I paid first and last month rent. He said, when do you want to move in? I said, now. Like, I have no... <laughs> it was officer and a gentleman. I've got no place to go, you know. <laughs> and... Um, I really wanted to take a shower and get off the front bench <laughs> of that truck, you know. And I had a bicycle. I didn't have a car in those days. And I lugged everything through the front door and uh, took a hot shower, put my bed together, and slept for about, you know, like 15 hours. I was so exhausted. Mm. Um, and then two nights later, and this is how I knew I moved to the right city. Am I rambling on too much? I'm here? loving it. So this is how I knew I was in the right city. Two nights later, I'm used to gigging every night, and I know no one in Nashville, and I have no gigs. And um, and I'm all kind of, you know, antsy and can't sit around the apartment anymore. I got to get this going somehow. <laughs> and um, I got on my bike. It was a Sunday night, and Nashville was much quieter in 1982. It wasn't, you know, the exploding metropolis that it is now. Yeah. And I wrote. I didn't know where I was going or the names of the places or anything. But on, you know, unbeknownst to me, I'm just wandering on my bicycle. I ride down Ellison Place, a neighborhood in Nashville, and I ride by the exit in, and I had no idea it was so famous at the time, and I hear this rocking band and this blistering piano. And, but the club is closed. And I ride around the club, and I hear this band just killing it. Unbelievable. And I ride along the stage door, and the stage door is open, and there is Leon Russell rehearsing his band. Wow. And I sat on my bicycle and, and stared through the door, mouth agape, watching <laughs> Leon Russell rehearse his band. And he looked like Colonel Sanders on acid. You know, he had that look. And um, in those days, like, John Cowan was the bass player, you know, all these amazing guys. I had no idea who they were, but I, I knew it was just incredible. And... And from the days of hearing Mad Dogs and Englishmen with Joe Cocker and, and then knowing more about his career later on, you know, as a member of the uh, Wrecking Crew and his years of like working with Frank Sinatra and all those places, people, I just could not believe it, you know, and it's February of 82, it's cold, you know, even in Nashville, but I am mesmerized on my bicycle by the stage door. And I knew then I moved to the right city. I was in the right place, you know. And um, so I scrambled around. I, well, I bought tickets, and he was playing Monday and Tuesday night. I bought tickets to both shows. And just, I was in love. I said, I'm in Nashville. You know, I'm single at the time. I have two fantastic children now. I've been married for 35 years. But at the time, I had zero responsibilities. And all I had to do was feed and clothe me and somehow survive you know, and somehow get around with my bicycle and all this <laughs> stuff, you know. And um, um, 
So I said, yeah, I'm in the right place. What made you come here to begin with? Do you just a whim or? Two things, partly a girl. Um, there's always a girl involved somehow, you know. <laughs> and partly, um, I knew that I had to go to National New York or LA. You know, like, I, even, even in college I knew that. And even when I was having the time of my life playing with this crazy rock and roll band right out of college. And um, I did, on little breaks, I flew out to LA, I had like a three day break, and rented a car and drove out to LA. And I loved LA, but I said, this is not for me. This is too crazy, it's too much. Even in 1980, 80, 81, even then I said, you know, it might be for some people, it's clearly for some people, but it's not for me. And I had been to New York many times, and then uh, with this wacky rock and roll band right out of college, we were playing in Louisville. And my girlfriend at the time, who went on to become my wife, Donna, and we're married a long, long time now, uh, on a day off, we drove down from Louisville to Nashville. And I went to like Printer's Alley, and, and Lower Broadway in those days was like lethal. But I went there and saw bands, and I met guys who were like middle-class guys, providing for families, living in real houses, gotcha. earning a living. And I said, I could do that. You know, I, I can do that, you know? And even though I was culturally and unprepared for what Nashville was culturally and musically about, I knew that I could figure it out. I could get that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I did that. I saved up, like I said, 3800 bucks. drove into Nashville, went for it. I had no plan B. Gotcha. Everybody I knew who had a plan B eventually went to plan B and left. Uh-huh. Uh, it was like, no... I'm not going back to Buffalo. There's no future for me there. This is it. And so I was in town for about two or three weeks. I see Leon Russell. And then I get a gig five nights a week at this rough, rough place called Sherry's, which is not there anymore. And it's right where Wedgwood goes into the fairgrounds. And now there's a very fancy apartment going there. But I can tell you that in 19... Uh, 82, that was one rough neighborhood. And Sherry's was an all-night bar that you played three to six in the morning and you got $35 at the end of each night in cash because you never knew if it was going to be open. And I played Tuesday through Saturdays there. And it was actually great in the sense that I met a lot of musicians who would, would play their gigs and then go to there to have a drink. But the interesting thing was the people you met there on Friday or Saturday or Sunday morning at 4 a.m. was relatively normal people who just wanted to stay out late. They weren't ready to go home. Yeah. But the person you meet there Tuesday at 4.30 in the morning, that's kind of a countercultural <laughs> individual, you know? Yeah. And so I saw a lot of bizarre stuff. Yeah. It was completely illegal, you know? But the cops were totally in on Cops would pull up in their cruisers to the bar, walk in, it was totally illegal to be open, and sit down at the bar and have an alcoholic drink and a hamburger, and then get back in the cruiser and go on. And they, the details of which I didn't want to know, but things were worked out, you know? Gotcha. And, um, <laughs> and from there, I started meeting people and starting networking with musicians and worked my way up from bad bar bands to good bar bands to from bad road gigs to eventually to work for very famous artists and great road gigs 
and I had a very successful career as a sideman playing for successful artists, you know, with record deals. Yeah. And I worked my way up. I played for the Righteous Brothers. I played for Bill Medley. I played for Alabama for a decade. I played for Aretha Franklin and Olivia Newton-John, John Michael Montgomery, Sawyer Brown. Um, and in between, I was the fill-in people guy for a lot of other gigs. And um, saved up my money. And my wife and I bought a house. And uh, we were very lucky to adopt two beautiful children and sent my kids to college. And... Um, You've got one graduating next month, I, have, I think you told me. Yes, one child, our daughter graduated in May, and our son, his schedule is a little off, but he, we're, if you're listening to this, it's November of 2019, and my son will graduate um, this uh, December. Can you... Um, sure. Um, yes. How are we doing on time? Am I... Um, um, we over the top here? No, I'm good. If you are, I'm good. Okay. So... Um, it needs to be mentioned, you know, since I'm really rattling on about myself and what a terrific guy I am, uh, it needs to be mentioned that I have been profoundly lucky because many, many times along the way uh, I have met people who have guided me, flat out helped me in every way possible, um, and learned a lot, you know, People who were very patient with me, uh, although I could knew theory and could read notes and stuff like that, you know, guys and girls who helped me, uh, you know, with the Nashville number system, for example, uh, which is sort of a pig Latin music theory, but that everybody in Nashville uses, and helping me with that, and with gigs and um, some advice that I would like to pass on. And, and I had some fantastic moments with this. Um, it is very, very wise to be as helpful as possible to other musicians, you know, not in ways that don't make any sense, but in any manageable, practical way that you can be helpful to other musicians, you should. Um, because number one, it's the right thing to do. And from a selfish perspective, it pays back dividends in your career in many, many ways. Uh, uh, I was very lucky. I felt uh, early on, I met, uh, there's a famous steel guitar player in Nashville named Paul Franklin. And I met Paul many, many years ago at the beginning of his hugely successful studio career as a steel player. Uh, basically, you know, like Paul Franklin and the pedal steel guitar are almost synonymous. And I met him, I was playing a bar gig, and I said to Paul, should I meet other musicians who don't play keyboards and try to network that way? Or if I try to network with other keyboard players, will they think that I'm muscling in on their gigs, you know? And he said, you should meet as many people as possible who do exactly what you do, or want to do exactly what you want to do, and then help each other as much as possible. And I fell into a clique of another half dozen keyboard players, all young at the time, all young guys like myself. And we helped each other in every way managed possible, not only like, you know, helping each other get gigs, but giving each other a ride to the airport, you know, loaning your lawnmower, um, right. anything yeah. that you could help each other with. And as a result, for many, many years, we were really tuned into 
what gigs were available and what was happening, what was coming down the pike. And we helped each other for a long time get gigs and move up. And one guy would move up a little bit and uh, he'd help you and you would move up a little bit and then you would get a big break and then you would help them, you know? Yeah. And um, really, really a very important thing. And um, uh, also, uh, this is how I started getting good artist gigs. Uh, I was playing at the time for a guy named Ed Bruce, who wrote Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up To Be Cowboys. Okay. And it was my first artist gig, and Ed was very kind and very patient with me, but it was a rough gig in the sense that, like, pretty rough bus playing a gazillion state fairs in Oklahoma and Texas. It was like the Dust Bowl of country music. And, but he was, at the time, very, very helpful. And he was very nice to me and very patient, taking into consideration how little I knew about country music. Um, but anyway, Ed was in Nashville, and he was playing on, on the uh, Nashville Now television show, which would tape in the afternoon. And uh, I had heard that Bill Medley the deeper half of the Righteous Brothers, was going to do a tour opening for Alabama. And this is in 1984, and Alabama was a colossally famous band by then. You know, they were a big deal. Yeah. And, um, and they were aud auditioning two keyboard players. They, bought, they brought their band from L.A., minus the two keyboard players, and they were going to audition two keyboard players there. And the audition was right in the middle of the time that I had to do the TV show with Ed Bruce. I went to the audition super early when they were just loading in and I had my little, you know, bio kit together and I met Larry Hansen who over the years played every instrument for the Righteous Brothers but, and he was the band leader and in that version of the band he was playing bass and I said, I can't stay for the audition but I really want this gig, you know? And he said, well, leave me your stuff here, you know. And he says, if you can get out of the TV show in time, we'll try to stay a little later and you can play. So I went over to Opryland at the TV show with Ed Bruce. And then literally, as soon as my part was done, put my jacket on, ran out the door, and went back to the Musicians Union. And Larry, true to his word, had stayed a little later, you know. And I auditioned. And he said, well, thank you very much. And... Uh, this was like in November of 84. And like three weeks later, he calls me up and says, you got the gig. Wow. And Larry and I became fast friends. To this day, we are the closest of friends. And we've both had families this, since then. I'm the godmother, godfather to uh, Larry's daughter, you know, and we've been very close. And we have helped each other many, many times over the years. Uh, that's, you know, really how becoming fast friends and looking out for each other is a priceless thing to do. It's, yes. it's good for you and it's good for other people in every way. Mm -hmm. Do not think twice about helping other people. And then I have a really hilarious, wonderful story about that, if time permits. Sure. Um, but uh, anyway, so two weeks later, he calls me up and says, you're in the band. Did you expect that call, or did you no, think too much I time not, had passed? No, I or? did not expect the call, because right before me, there was a much, much more famous, more successful keyboard player right before me. And I thought, oh, this guy's in. There's no way they're going to pick me. 
you know. But the interesting thing, we will not name this fellow, the interesting thing is in the audition, the guy lights up and is smoking a cigarette in the audition. Keep in mind, it's only 1984. The thing about cigarettes, you know, was different then. Mm -hmm. But uh, the other guys in the L.A. band did not like that he was smoking mm -hmm. while he's auditioning in the gig. Yeah. You know? So Mr. Famous, Famous Guy, who was certainly a better piano player than me and much more had a much more famous career than them that was the thing that kept him from getting a gig isn't it the the mm. oddest thing mm. and um and it was mm. his whatever was sort of to my benefit because i did get the gig yeah and yeah. um uh and i was thrilled and i went out for a year and opened for alabama in 1985 with bill medley of the righteous brothers and it was the most hilarious fun time ever you know, and then that gig led on to other gigs, led on to other gigs, better and better gigs, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, that was just a wonderful time. But here's a hilarious story, and this is why you should always help people. I am Grammy-nominated John Maddock. I will be Grammy-nominated John Maddock the day I die. It'll be in my, you know, whatever. I'll, that what they'll say, you know, in the paper with my little goofy picture. <laughs> And I am Grammy nominated for a completely ridiculous, absurd reason. But it was a fantastic thing that led on to what I do a lot of now. Um, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. There's a big Polish community in Buffalo, New York. There's a lot of polka music in Buffalo, New York. And being a kid in Buffalo playing the accordion, I can assure you, I have deep experience, you know, you know, part of my roots besides rock and roll is polka music. So I have friends in Buffalo who have actually, sounds like a contradiction in terms, but have successful polka bands who play parties and stuff like that. And they do, they're like, there's sort of like a successful party casual wedding band that actually do pretty good, you know? Yeah. So. I lived in Michigan for a short you time. Know. And did see a lot of. Yes. That type of traditional, it's, right. it's like a folk music. It is a folk music and. If you listen to some of the rhythms, it's not unlike some country music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, my friend in this polka band calls me up and he says, uh, our band needs some better songs. Can you write like a couple songs that we could record as polkas? And by the way, we need a waltz. So um, uh, my two friends and I, we write some songs for them and we send them the songs and they record the songs. Great. And then they send me the masters. This is in the days when it was still multi-track masters. Right. And they say, could you put some piano on them? I said, sure. And I send them the masters back. They release the album. Maybe, in by polka standards, they were successful. They sold like 1,500 albums, you know. Uh, but they own everything about it, so it's actually a few bucks, you know. And they said, uh, what do we owe you for this? And I said, oh, please, forget it, you know. Like, by then, I had played you know, on multi-million selling albums with Alabama. And, you know, they sell all maybe 1,500 records. I'm like, please, forget it. Go with God. Thank you very much. <laughs> so they say, well, we're going to list you as a member of the band on the back of the album. I say, great. Thank you so much. You know, the in those days, there was a Grammy category for polka music. And the album gets nominated for Polka Album of the Year in the Grammy Awards. How great is that? <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of this record and the, the band? The name of the band is still together. They're called the Buffalo Touch, and they're a polka band. 
I love it. Yeah. So there now there is no longer a category for polka. It's been rolled into folk music or something, rural music, you know. Okay. So anyway, you know, it's hilarious. I have played on platinum selling albums that was never nominated for anything. I play on a polka album and I write some of the songs for it. <laughs> And it sells about 1,500 copies, and now I'm Grammy-nominated John Maddock. <laughs> so they say, we're going to the Grammys in February of 2005, I think it was. And they say, do you want to go? Because we, we can go. I said, yeah. And I buy a ticket for my wife. I mean, this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Why would you not go? Yes. And the year we go there and do it, Prince and Beyonce do their duet on stage, and I'm Aww. like... 30 feet away and it's oh, mind-blowing you know wow and um we don't That's win cool. but it i don't care yeah you know i'm there you know and about six or seven weeks months something like that before we go i decided that i'm going to try and make and then we'll wrap this up no, I, no, just, you're good. I decided that i'm going to try and make some hay out of being grammy nominated john maddock because with my business partners in nashville Uh, I'm part of a team called Crew 22, three of us, and we write music for film and television. And we've had almost 90s, we've had music in almost 90 episodes of network television. And this is how it starts, by helping somebody, and then it helps you. Um, I know I'm going to L.A. for the Grammy Awards, and I am, have 15 seconds of fame, you know, Grammy-nominated John Maddock. Hi. And I say, I'm going to try and get some appointments in the music business in L.A., based on being Grammy-nominated, and I have this catalog of music that my friends and I have made. Can we make this work? Can I get ahead, you know? Well, 2004 was right uh, at the second crash of the CD business, and I might as well have been wearing a suicide vest with dynamite on it. <laughs> no one wanted to see me in the music business. They, they would go, you're Grammy-nominated, you got these tracks, so what? No, no, we're, no, don't come see me. How did you get my number? Don't call me. <laughs> That kind of reply. I love it. And my wife, though, is very astute. And she said, you're going out there no matter what, right? I said, yeah. And you're going to go out there for a whole week before. Go to the, because leading up to the Grammy Awards, there's all these events throughout the week. They call it Grammy Week. And I'm going to go to everyone. And I'm going to shake every hand and have the experience. Wonderful. Exactly. So... Um, she says, what else do they do out there that uses music? And I said, well, there's movies and TV and stuff. Well, that all is music in it, right? I said, yeah. She goes, we'll try to get some appointments. So I use my uh, 15 seconds of BS, and I start calling all these movie television people. And I go out to L.A. Grammy Week with 15 appointments in the mu music, movie business and the music business and TV. And I don't know anything about it. So I'm in these meetings saying some of the most stupid greenhorn things in the world. But they're kind of merciful on me. They don't laugh at me and throw me out of their offices. And I do not get one gig out of that. Fifteen meetings, zero gigs. But it was the beginning of meeting people and the beginning of understanding the process of how you get a song in a TV show or a movie and how you network to make that happen, and the role of music supervisors, who are the gatekeepers for that process on behalf of the directors of the movies, and the studio or the television network or whatever. Right. And that was the beginning of understanding that. And my two music business partners, Chris, uh, Chris Carpenter and Rodney Lawson, 
I went back, you know, and shared this kind of gold mine of information. Guys, we got to do this. This is how it works. And every time I had a free ticket on Southwest Airlines, I would go out there, rent a car, stay in the cheapest place possible, and drive around and see people. And slowly but surely, we slowly started getting songs and TV shows. And now that is an important portion. It's about one-third of my annual income, I'm besides playing gigs or writing songs or whatever, that uh, our royalties through BMI, that's how we started that. And I am a worker bee in the music business. You know, I am not rich, but I am not poor. I drive a decent car, put kids through college, live in a nice house. But I am not, I'm never going to be famous. I'm never going to do couch time, you know, on Jimmy Fallon or whatever. <laughs> I am a worker bee, middle class guy in the music business. And yeah. that's, that's a portion of what I, we do. And I have really terrific partners. Rodney Lawson who knows everything about working with Logic Audio and uh, really a great programmer, and Chris Hinson, who's a great lyricist and singer. And between the three of us, we can play all the instruments and do everything. And insight into what we do, if you're going to make music, you need to find a way that you can make music as close to free as possible. Because no one's going to pay you to write songs and make recordings, it always happens after the fact. So I had to team up with people who had skills that I didn't have. So Rodney plays guitar and bass and sings a bit, but he is a genius of a programmer and started working with Logic Audio when it was eMagic and through all the various evolutions of that, the various iterations of that. And I met Chris who started singing sessions on gospel records when he was in grade school. He's a young man and when I met him he was already very polished at that. And so between the three of us we can do everything and I'm sort of the rainmaker of the team and I go out to California and New York and beg and plead and grovel. My wife <laughs> makes fun of me. She goes, I see you're going to Los Angeles again. This is the begging and pleading groveling tour I see. It absolutely is. <laughs> You know, and um, and starting in 2004, when I first went out through for the first time through now, since then, we have had music in almost 90 episodes of network television. And uh, goodness, and it has become an important portion of my income that, except for the trips to California and New York, doesn't involve traveling. Uh, we go to our little studio two, three days a week, uh, whether we have something to write for or not, every week, like going to the office, and we write and record music, and we find a home for that music, and sometimes we have only the vaguest idea of how it will be used, and other times we know certain TV shows are coming up, and we have a general idea of what we want. In the old days, we used to write songs specifically for a TV show, and have it be in the style that we knew they wanted. We realize that it's impossible to be good at every type of music. You know, even with three guys, you can't play every style of music really well and sound genuine. Mm -hmm. So we had to shift gears over time and say, what are the styles of music that we can do a really good job at? What slices of the pie? 
so we can do classic rock, country, um, some pop stuff, um, some of the more modern sounding pop music that has like hip hop influences, but we do not do, we are not quote unquote a hip hop artist or a rap artist or, no. It's, as soon as you listen to us doing that type of music, it's like, oh, you, you guys don't sound like that at all. You know, but we can have those influences in our music. Sure. And that's the slice of the pie that you try to make music supervisors aware of that you're good at and that they will call upon you right. when they need those types of music. You know, we don't do jazz. We don't do big band music. We don't do classical. We don't do punk. You know, we don't do any of those things. Um, whenever we try to do things uh, strictly to make somebody happy and step out of what we're good at, it was so painfully clear that we were awful at it, you know? Uh, so we try to do things that we're really good at. That's great. I mean, I think it's really good to know yourself. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then you can really excel at what you're supposed to be doing. And um... You know, um, Albert Einstein used to say, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he said, you don't, know, you don't need to know everything. He goes, I don't want to study anything that I can't just read a book. And figure it out, you mm -hmm. know, and he said. Uh, he also said, "I'm paraphrasing now. Um, you can't possibly be good at everything, so you have to be good at some things, really good at some things, and then go to other people for help for what you're not good at, for the other slices of the career, musical, you know. In his case, the cosmos pie. Yeah, you know? and." Um, and so, Who did he go to, I wonder? Yeah, yeah. Well, well you know, I, I like, for example, he was a uh, theoretical physicist and everything, but apparently not so theoretical because he was really on the ball on some things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a guy like him can't build everything that has to be built, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, they had to bring in machinists, and they had to bring in, you know, guys who could turn an idea into a physical thing in front of you. Right. You know? Well, he had to find somebody who could do that, or people found for him, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, you know things, you know, genius ideas that he was a part of that made it possible, sadly, for nuclear weapons, but also to go out into, you know, you know, the space race and go to other planets and and all this stuff, you know, satellites and all that stuff. You know, none of that would have been possible without the fundamental science of what he did. But when he came up with that, that somebody had to build a satellite and somebody had to build a rocket, you know? Right, uh, right. You know, he's an integral piece, but still just an integral piece of yeah. this, you know, scientific revolution that we've lived through now. Yes, So, yes. Um, and, you know, life is like that, you know? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you're, you're one bit of a big, larger picture. Right. And... Um, it's, you just to find your place in it is right. um, especially in the in the music business. I think that right. um, uh, it can be intimidating until you're comfortable with what it is you have to offer and you feel confident in it, and then you just give it. And then even then, you can be thrown into uh, environments that are different from what you're used to, and you can initially feel uncomfortable. Uh, I don't work in Los Angeles or New York very much, but but I do occasionally. And when I go to either coast, uh, you know, there's kind of a different culture and there's a kind of a different etiquette and things like that. 
and uh, I can be intimidated in those situations sometimes. And um, I've had a couple scary moments, both in Nashville like that, you know, two funny but mortifying experiences. When I first was in Nashville, uh, I was on one of my first sessions in a quote-unquote real recording studio with a real band and pretty well-known musicians and uh, at a famous building and everything like that. And it's my first time ever. And it's kind of the classic thing where engineer producers are behind glass and kind of looking down on you and you're playing away. And I'm playing piano and I come from an environment, like I might have mentioned, where I played keyboard bass and left-hand bass, you know, and so on. So I'm playing piano, and I'm just all over the instrument, you know, and not realizing that I am horribly overplaying, and I'm in the way of everybody, you know. But I don't know that, you know. I, I just think I'm killing it, you know. And um, I hear, hold it, hold it, hold it, and the producer. It was it was a brutal experience, oh, but it was no. a very good experience. The producer holds the talk back mic and he doesn't even call me by my name he says piano player oh I said yeah and in my mind I am so fat-headed I think he's gonna tell me how I'm killing it like I'm just doing a great job <laughs> he says piano player stand up oh I said okay he goes put your left hand on the piano bench oh. I said okay he goes sit down on your left hand <laughs> Drummer counted in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's like one of my first real sessions with a real band in a room, you know. <laughs> and it was like, it was exactly what I had to learn, perhaps not in the easiest way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but, and yet, um, a real turning point, I would think. Like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And then another time, I don't mind mentioning this guy's name. Um, uh, I was in the rehearsals. I did the Dirty Dancing tour, and I played with Bill Medley when he had the hit. I had the time of my life on Dirty Dancing. Okay. And then they did a tour of that, of the dancers who were in the movie, and so some of the artists, uh, Eric Carmen from the Raspberries, who sang Hungry Eyes, and Mary Clayton, who sang the song Yes, and Bill did, you know, I Had the Time of My Life, plus his Righteous Brothers hits. And... Um, Mary Clayton sang Yes, which was a big hit from the movie, and she sang in all these famous movies, or songs. So I'm in Los Angeles rehearsing for two weeks. Uh, oh, and they had, we also backed up the, the contours who sang, Do You Love Me? Oh, that's and cool. they were on the tour, and it was the dancers from the movie plus extras. So it was, and we went out and did sheds and arenas and stadiums all over America. And then we went to wow. uh, Europe and then we played Australia. And so it was a lot of fun. Um, anyway, I'm in the rehearsals, the very first rehearsals. And we learned Eric Carmen's hits from when he was with the Raspberries. And um, uh, we... Um, Learn Hungry Eyes, you know, the hit. and then he also has a song that was just coming out there called um, Turn the Radio Up, Lose Control, okay. which was a big hit. It was a number one hit in America Why we're out on the road doing this. Yeah. So Eric shows up, and Eric is also a piano player and played um, All By all by Myself, All By Myself. I was just going to say, is that who I think That's it is? That's him, and he played piano on that and sang it, but he's not going to play piano much. He's only going to play piano on one or two songs. 
and the rest of the time he's going to stand in front of the band and sing. Yeah. And Eric hadn't played a live gig in quite a while, and we and he's he's a little nervous. Uh, what some people turn nervousness, it comes out of them in different ways, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I'm playing it, and the bands, all the guys in the band, are great, you know, really really polished musicians. The other, there were two keyboard players in that band. The other keyboard player was Mark Hugenberger, who went on to score for many movies and was like played in the house bands of television show, like really, just as an example, you know. Okay. David Bronson was a drummer, very polished drummer, uh, played for many artists. So we're, things are going pretty good. And Eric turns to me and says, play your piano a little bit. Can I use minor profanity on this? Sure. Cool. So Eric Carmen turns to me and says, play your piano a little bit. And I, ha I had the first version of the MKS-20 piano module. It was a digital piano module. And I had spent some time tweaking that sound to get it sound pretty good. To me, it sounded pretty good. Yeah. So I play for him, and he looks at me and he goes, your piano sounds like shit. And this is like the first day I've met Eric, <laughs> and it's like the first rehearsal out in L.A. for the oh, no. store. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just looking at him going, and I didn't realize that he was also very anxious. Like, he hadn't Mm. done a tour in like years you know yeah <laughs> <coughs> so, uh, so taking I'm, it out <laughs> I'm a little uncomfortable <laughs> and we take a break in rehearsal and Eric goes to lunch and the David Bronson who's the band leader comes up to me and says John he can tell that I'm uncomfortable now oh you know? yeah yeah but I'm not saying anything but he says yeah John I just want to let you know he says this casually as possible he goes on Eric has no influence whatsoever on your employment. I was like, at that point, great. <laughs> go ahead, say anything. I'm good, you know. I don't have to go home, you know. I'm going to make the rest of this tour, you know. And Magic words. Yes, the magic words, you still have a gig. Yeah. You know, those are magic words. That's wonderful to hear. Yes. And so what happened was um, he does limber up. He does become more relaxed. And he does, after maybe really like 15 shows of like a 120 show tour, oh, wow. he relaxes, you know. And then we became pals. Good. You know, and we got along. And I remember like one time we're, uh, we're getting ready to fly to Australia. The European, the American legs are done and it's the last leg of the tour. We're going to fly to Australia. And he and I are on the floor of LAX drinking heavily. <laughs> together <laughs> you know? and by then we were good buddies by then you know <laughs> so um, it did get better you know he was just anxious and once you realize that and, and, and as a guy I've certainly been in as a musician not just a guy but as a musician I've been in many situations where I'm very anxious and it comes out of you it manifests itself in different ways. Right. You know? Right. And um, so that was just a moment that passed. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is, it's rough because you're, you're away from home. Mm -hmm. You're totally dependent on these people to be on their right. mercy. They're going to be uh, right. kind to you. Right. Uh, you know, you are making good money, I'm going to guess. But, I mean, that's kind of meaningless if you are miserable for 24 hours out of the day. Um, it can, that at least it can become more meaningless pretty quickly. Right. <laughs> um, 
But what David made clear to me, I didn't realize this at the very beginning, but they needed Bill Medley, and Bill Medley has... That's who's under auspices I came out there with because he had the hit from the movie, you know, yeah. Time of My Life. Yeah. This huge international worldwide hit. Um, to this day. To this day, yes. It has played so many weddings and. Right. You know, it's, it's, special it is, events. quote unquote, a standard. Yes. So um, the tour was not going to happen without Bill. And I came out there as part of Bill's band, and I didn't realize. The negotiation that went on before I got there, Bill said he didn't want to do it. So he gave them a price that he thought would keep him from having to do it. He said, um, I will only do it if you pay me X amount of dollars. And he totally overpriced himself. And I will only do it if I get to use my band and my band plus a few other people will back up all the others. But I have my band wall to wall on this tour. Sweet. And my attorney will negotiate the band's deal. And he thought that is one sure way. He goes, I'll never have to do this. Lo and behold, nope. They go, whatever you say, Bill. <laughs> You're in. Wow. And I didn't know that in the rehearsals in Los Angeles prior to, I didn't know that Bill had done all this. Yeah. And I was out there under Bill's protection. I was in Bill's bubble. Gotcha. You know? Yeah. And so... It's a good, good place to be. Yeah, very good place to be. And so I didn't realize that, you know, and so when Eric said that kind of harshly to me, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> you know? And um, because, you know, like, I'm living in a hotel. I don't live in Los Angeles. I'm driving or rent a car through L.A. traffic every day to this rehearsal, you know? And... Um, uh, yeah, you know, it, I was nervous. And then when all this came out, I was like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I love this guy. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm going to tell a story that's going to wrap this up. Okay. You know, if, if you don't mind it. Yeah. No, go for it. I, I mean, but I, I'm thinking of like a million questions. That well, then I'll tell the story. So. And then you can ask me whatever questions <laughs> you want to ask. Okay. So this is a life, life advice. Should you ever rent a car in another city? <laughs> <laughs> and they offer you to buy the insurance even instead of putting it on your your insurance that you have for your car. Yeah. Buy the insurance. It costs more money, sometimes kind of exorbitant, but I will tell you it's worth every penny. And here is why. So <laughs> I'm rehearsing for two weeks in Los Angeles. At the end of the two weeks of the rehearsal, all our gear and the whole band and everything are air freighting to New York to rehearse for two weeks with the dancers. Now the band has it together and you're gonna rehearse with the dancers and work out some of the dance routines and make sure everything fits. So I have a rent-a-car that I, something told me, buy the insurance, and I did. And I'm on the Santa Monica Freeway, I-10, driving to the airport. Uh, you drive, I'm driving west on the Santa Monica Freeway to get to the Interstate 5 to drive south to LAX. And, and it's like 70 miles an hour bumper to bumper traffic. It's like a 70 mile an hour traffic jam, but moving, you know, and it's pretty tense. And there's a big truck in front of me. And the big truck drives over a two by four. And the two by four goes into the air and like a spear goes through the windshield 
of the car I'm driving and lands in the passenger seat like a spear and shatters the windshield. And I cannot stop the car because all around me, it's like five lanes of 70 mile an hour traffic. Oh my goodness. And for about two minutes, my heart is in my throat. I am on the verge of going into shock. I'm so freaked out. And then, after a couple more minutes and I'm getting on to Interstate 5 South, I start laughing uncontrollably because <laughs> I realize I've bought all the insurance on this car and it's demolished but still rolling and there's a chunk of lumber through the windshield and I'm turning it into Hertz Rent-A-Car and I don't know a penny on this car. <laughs> You're on your way to Hertz literally at that moment. Literally on my way to Hertz to drop off the car. <laughs> And I'm driving into the airport, and I'm driving into the rent-a-car place, <laughs> laughing my head off, because literally there's a chunk of lumber through the windshield and laying on the hood of the car. Windshield is splattered, splattered glasses every place, paint's and, chipped. And you're not dead either. And you're I'm alive. <laughs> Nothing bad has happened. I don't even have scratches on me from all the glass. And I'm laughing at my and I'm looking at the guy, and the guy's where you checking the car, and he's just looking at me, mouth agape, like. And I, sh I just, I don't say a word. I hand him the paperwork, and he sees all the insurance is paid for. He goes, "Have a good flight." <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, outside of the music business, when you rent a car, buy all the insurance. Ah. You heard it here. You know, you're making me a little bit nervous because I'm driving a rental car right now because mm -hmm. I hit a deer last weekend. So, oh, if I just can get to the collision, the body shop <laughs> in one piece. <laughs> well, here's the one thing about that. Talk about that. That car was probably provided for you yes. by and through your insurance company. It was, yes. So your insurance, in a situation like that, your insurance company already owns the car. I'm okay, okay. You're good. But if you drive to another city <laughs> and you're not under the umbrella of an insurance company and you're just going to sign it on to your, no. <laughs> Buy, the, buy all the insurance, you know, and then by all means, you know, sideswipe some telephone poles on the way to the airport, you know. <laughs> and I'll, uh, you know, uh, spill a milkshake in the front seat, you know, go ahead. You know. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. That's so, that's terrifying though, honestly. It was. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, my goodness. I know you, you've said like at least twice. How insanely lucky you are. Yes. And um, I, I'm just thinking, what a full life. I mean, it's like, just, you, you've known a lot of artists, known mm -hmm. a lot of musicians. Yeah. Um, you've played in tons of bands. Mm -hmm. and, like, tons of, so, what's, I, I don't even know where to start. I'm just, my mind's kind of blown. Um, and you know lots of gear. I think anybody in their right mind needs to take you to have a donut. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, hey, if, if you're listening, I live in East Nashville, the land of good coffee, and I'm available for a coffee and a donut. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, anybody in their right mind needs to contact you that wants to know about the music business and, and have a chat and needs advice. You know, if, if I was going on my first tour, for instance, I'd mm -hmm. give you a call. Well, you know, one of the things are very much along those lines. Um, for, for your entire career, you need to go out and network. You know, uh, even though I've been in Nashville a long time, you know, uh, as an example, all the guys who were the most famous session players when I came to Nashville, none of those guys are in the music business anymore, or almost none of them. 
you know, almost like all the guys who were in my clique of a half dozen keyboard players, they've aged out or they're doing other things now or, you know, so the point where there is no point where you don't have to go out and meet people and network and remind people you're alive and be in the mix, be part of it. Um, and one of the things I have found is I would rather go to the dentist office and get a double root canal than hang out in a nightclub <laughs> and try to network with people and talk loud over the music and all this stuff. And, you know, no, I don't want to do that. And so to this day, I just call people up that I want to meet and friends that I've known all through the years. And I say, I will meet you at Bongo Java. What time can we meet at Bongo Java? On what day? And I'm buying the coffee. And we can talk about music or family or whatever. And just chit-chat. And that is my version of networking. Uh, because I really, you know, I will go out to a nightclub. I have a gig. Great. There's a band or a music artist or whatever I really want to see. Fantastic. But to sit and walk around a bar and shake hands and, you know, I am Gerald Ford, vote for me. I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, uh, so, you know, uh, or in my case, hi, I'm Bernie Sanders, vote for me. Uh, you know, uh, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I mean, so whatever it, was, it is, it works for you. It was kind of special the other night that you came out and played Soul Vibes. Right. Um, and you brought Gene. Right. I got to meet a new, another keyboard player. Right, exactly. Um, right. Um, what she's referring to is a, is a Soul Vibes show where they bring in all these musicians and you get assigned a song and you might not necessarily know who you're playing with and you learn the song and you play it the first time without rehearsing and every now and then there's a train wreck but most of the time it's fantastic and one of my good friends one of the guys in my circle Gene Sisk who played for Eddie Rabbit for 12 years and uh, Kenny Rogers for 20 years you know I you know we there's no point where it ends where you don't have to get out you know, you want to be part of the world. And so Gene and I came down, and I introduced uh, Gene to Amy, and uh, that's the whole process. That's how it works. So were you ever on a gig, and something like, was it going too well? Or you, or, or like, let's say you had an equipment problem, or mm -hmm. were you able to call these guys from the road and, like, get get some input from them, your, your circle? Um, there, I have been, here is my go-to guy. Uh, in the past, I would do that, call other keyboard players. Um, but there is a guy named Ed Turner. Ed Turner is my technological hero. Um, I first met Ed. Ed was the s stage manager in main tech for Alabama for at least 25 years. And, and uh, before I was the piano player for Alabama, I was playing with Bill Medley and we were opening for Alabama. And we're playing the Greek theater in L.A. And my predecessor with Alabama, Costo Davis, was playing keyboards. And it was the very beginning of digital keyboards. And Costo, of course, was playing the famous Yamaha DX7, one of the most mass-produced keyboards of all time. I think there was like a city ordinance. If you were in Nashville, you had to own a DX7. There was probably some rule made up by Nashville like that. <laughs> right. Everybody had one. Yeah. So anyway, Koss was playing, and it's a big part of his keyboard rig, plus he has a piano and all these other instruments. And right in the middle of the song, like a song, like third song into the show, the DX7 goes down and breaks. 
Ed Turner, calm as can be, doesn't run on the stage, doesn't create any fuss, walks up to Caso, says, Caso, play piano for as long as you can. Takes the DX7 off the stage, and I'm standing, he goes, Johnny, hold the flashlight. And in the dark, he puts the DX7 down on the concrete floor of the stage at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles, opens it up like in no time at all, takes a magnifying glass and finds a crack in the circuit board, gets out a soldering kit and fixes the crack in the circuit board on the fly, buttons it back up within three songs, puts it back on stage, and it's working. And I was mouth agape, just amazed. I said, someday this guy has got to be my keyboard tech. I need him. I can't live without a guy like this, you know? Yeah. And a certain number of years later, he is my tech. I'm working for them, and he's the guy. Uh, Ed and I haven't worked together in 20 years, but we remain very close friends. And I call Ed it, literally at least once a week um, for advice on everything, right. <laughs> including technology and keyboards. And he has remained abreast of all the uh, technological advances since that time. Computers, etc. Yep. So, um, I, you know, before I hit record, um, you were telling me about a few teachers that you really, really remember that, that do stand out. And mm -hmm. I just wanted to touch on that real yeah. quick, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, like why they were, who they were and why they were great and, and how they helped you. I'll tell you about my three favorites. Okay. And the, and the ones that I'm not so fond of, um, we, I have since blocked them from my memory. So here's my favorites. My first teacher was Gordon Poplar, who taught me to play the accordion. And uh, I was a, he was a very formal guy. But he sort of, you know, when you're a musician, um, you're judged in many, many ways. So it, for, as an example, you know, like when you're a musician, it's sort of like you're going to the office. If office attire is a three-piece suit and a tie, that's what you wear. If you're a musician and, you know, professional wear is whether it's, you know, uh, stressed jeans and a torn t-shirt and a base, backwards baseball cap, if that is the apparel, that is the professional attire, that's what you wear. You know, whatever it is, you know, you know, if you're playing, you know, like a super uh, straight gig and you got to wear a tuxedo, clean up that tuxedo and polish your shoes, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting enough, um, Gordon, when I walked into to his music studio, was in a pressed shirt, tie, pressed pants, polished shoes, perfectly coiffed hair, and I took one look at this guy and I go, wow, he's pretty serious. And, and then he was kind of formal, yet helpful and friendly. And he, he it was the beginning of being taught music theory and how to read notes, but also, um, you know, how to play the instrument and tone. And he would watch me play and try to keep me from getting bad habits, like the way you, way you held your hands and everything. So he was wonderful. He, he was really great. Um, the second really wonderful teacher that I spoke about was J Jimmy Wozniak. Just so generous in time 
and he really knew what I wanted. You know, like, uh, he, you know, like I couldn't wait to rock out and and in blues and jazz, and he knew all about this stuff. And um, not only was he a good teacher, but he would say to my father, you know, I'm playing at you know Fred Saloon on Thursday night, and I would go and see him with professional musicians and watch him play and he was the first guy I met who taught me about not only how to play these cool songs and these cool styles that like but what it was to be a working day-to-day -day working musician you know and what that took and that was a real insight you know and then finally uh, not last teacher but just a really great teacher I had a teacher named Mary Walkner and she has a son named um, Julius Walkner, who's now a very successful composer, classical composer in New York and Los Angeles and Grammy-nominated guy. Um, and so, she, so are you. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, um, yes, but he's really good. So, uh, anyway, um, Mary, this, she, you know, I didn't know, I knew almost nothing about classical music when I met Mary. And this was a really great experience. I was in a two-year college in Buffalo, and I wanted to go on to Berkeley. And uh, I made a decision that I was going to audition for Berkeley and Eastman School of Music. And if I didn't get into either one of those, I wasn't going. And the audition for Eastman required me to play three very complicated pieces. One piece from the classical era, from the Romantic era and from the Baroque era. So it was Bach, Chopin, and Beethoven. Right. Um, and I really, I was not much of a classical player. But she knew that this was something I really wanted to do. And she was, she is, a tremendous classical musician. Um, so she more or less spoon-fed me these three pieces. And we worked on them in small, small chunks until for a year, quite possibly, it was about a year that we, they were, finally they were pieced together and I could actually play them and sound somewhat real and genuine doing them. Gotcha. you um, remember what they were? Uh, uh, Beethoven, Beethoven Piano Sonata Number 5, Bach Prelude and Fugue 1 and 2, I think. Yeah. So like in C major? Yeah. Or, okay. Right. And then a Chopin etude. And I can't remember which one okay. it was. Okay. All right. Um, Just and, curious. No, yeah. And, and I, previous to that, I had very limited, ex almost no experience with classical music. And the Beethoven piece in particular was really challenging. But, you know, and, and when you look at the music that I worked on, the sheet music, you know, by the time we got through, she had written all oh, yeah. over. There were like tons of notes, you know, <laughs> yeah. this, that, you know. Um, yeah. But I could get through it. And that that um, style of music is very regimented. Yes. And so um, I went and auditioned for Eastman and did not get in. But I have no regrets about that. It was the experience of a lifetime, you know, to immerse, my, immerse myself in that music and the challenge of getting that together and having a teacher who was also a coach, mm -hmm. you know, who really believed in me, you know. Yeah. And she also taught me about how to hold my hands and play properly. When I first met her, 
she said, play something for me. So I played, and she said, well, you play pretty well. Uh, she said, but if you keep playing, no, I am almost 64 years old now. Uh, she said, if you keep, I was in my 20s then, she says, if you keep playing the way you're playing, by the time you're 30, you physically won't be able to play anymore. Because you're playing just from your wrists to the end of your fingers. And you are going to wear out your hands. You know, it'll be like a carpal tunnel festival for you when you get there. So, um, and she taught me how to play all the way from the center of my chest, through my shoulder, all the way down to my fingertips. So that it wasn't just the little muscles in your wrists and your hands doing all that work. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how to lay into it and move my arms and, and, you know, give my hands and wrists a break. Like, you know, you have these appendages, use them completely. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a priceless part of my education, you know, because, you know, when you go on after that and you're playing saloons five hours a night, you can't play a saloon five hours a night. Even though she was a classical teacher, you can't play saloons five hours a night with just your wrists and your little fingers, yeah. you can't do it. Yeah. It'll kill you. So um, that was really useful. And to this day, I am very grateful to her. Um, so yeah, yeah, that, that really worked out. Um, so Mary, if you ever listen to this, I think she, I, she's still around. I believe she lives in California. Uh, congratulations on your son's success, and you were a big help. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I always like to ask that because it mm-hmm. really... Um, it does. It, it advises me right. on what's really going to matter down the road, right. and um, I feel like I'm, you know, in a position where I can help create some musicians. Mm-hmm. There's people who uh, I'm currently working with who I who want to do it, you know, right. and uh, right. save them some time, you know, maybe help them along a little bit quicker. Right. Um, right. So I'm always asking you guys. You know, any shortcuts, whether they're business-wise or playing-wise, that can save a young person months or years boy it's 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 worth it you know in every possible that you can somehow pass along to them but i want to say this i'm very careful you know it's very kind that i get to say these things and ramble on like this but as i've gotten older i now have you know how in star trek they have the prime directive where you won't influence Pop, you know, populations and bring new technology if they're not ready for it all of a sudden. My prime directive is I no longer want to convince anybody of anything ever. Because um, there's, you know, like if I get the sense that somebody doesn't want to hear what I have to say, I'm not insulted in any way. Yeah. And I immediately try to shut up as soon as possible. I'm rambling on here because I've been invited to, so thanks a lot. Yeah, sure. Um, but I don't, you know, so I'm careful... Sometimes, you know, like if there's a young person there and he or she doesn't want to hear it, you know, maybe what I'm saying isn't that important, you know, or maybe yeah. it's, it's, they don't need it or they don't want to hear it. And I've certainly been in situations where people felt they had something important to tell, to tell me, but I don't want to hear it. You know, <laughs> I got to go, you know. Yeah. Um, for example, they have, uh, Berkeley has uh, events where they bring juniors and seniors from Berkeley about to graduate. And they get a tour of Nashville, and they get the high-end, high-brow tour of Nashville. Where they go to all the nicest studios, and they meet all these famous people. Yeah. And then they get to mingle with alumni who have graduated and are working here. And they pretty much don't want to hear what I have to say. And I don't hold that against them. You know, 
I'm sometimes I can understand where I'm just some old airbag and they don't want to hear from me, or they don't want their bubble burst. Like they're going to come to Nashville and and they're going to be, uh, you know, working with the top people right away, and maybe they will. You know, this is an unusual business. That stuff actually happens sometimes. Sure. Rarely, but it does. You know. Yeah. So um, I just need to shut up. You know, and and I don't mind that. It's fine. Right. You know. Right. Uh, I, you know, like, I, I kind of learned early on, no, they don't want to hear this stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> you know they don't want to play at Sherry's for $35 a night. They're not interested, you know. Right. Um, so. The Hall of Fame was like that for me. One winter night. Um, one, one winter week, actually, I, I played there for 35 a night. Yes. With um. With a guy who played, I can't remember his name now, but he played acoustic guitar real well mm-hmm. and sang every Merle Haggard song. I mean, he knew them by heart. He, you know, just a a true right. country artist. And we had right. a real country band. Right. Steel player. Right. And, you know, the kind that would make the hairs on the back of your head right. stand straight up. You know. Right. Um, but, yeah, the $35 night thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and your schlepping gear, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Yep. Uh, tips. It's, well, we, you know, you don't realize that now downtown is so different. It's like Gallenberg or, um, I don't know, it's, it's... You know, downtown Nashville is sort of like the French Quarter in New Orleans mixed with Gatlinburg. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and I have played down there over the years several times. Um, and you get a, a base pay, if you're listening here, you get a base pay of sometimes, say, somewhere between $35 and sometimes to $120, and then you get tips for playing requests. And prior to playing in Nashville and gigs like that, I never got tips. I mean, it seemed weird to ask for a tip. It seemed, what, you know, like I'm not a waiter, I'm the piano player, you know? Um, so that's kind of a, that was like a totally new idea to me that you would do something like that. Yeah. Um, but it becomes an integral part of the income of a lot of people who play there. And there are a lot of people who come to town, and that is their like entry level gig to playing in Nashville. And as tedious as those, those places can be, you're lucky to be there and get those gigs. Like they have a gig playing music in town, and you're shaking hands and you're meeting people and you're finding your path, uh, you're finding your way, you know. And so uh, the tedious part about playing those gigs, if, about that, is. Uh, man, getting down there, finding some place that you can afford to park, you know, like, or, you know, dr- dr- driving like a mile away and hiking in and playing there. Or get, calling a lift. Right, on a lift. And, right, and then getting Uber. gear in and out of there, Ubering in and out of there. Yeah. Um, how tedious that is. And plus, you play four or five hours with no break. Yeah, maybe one. Maybe one, because if you take a break, you're not earning tips. And you're losing your people. And you're losing your people. Because they're going to go to the next bar because there's a band playing there. Right. That's exactly <laughs> it. And then when you're, when you're leaving there, um, there's a row of cabs and Ubers where you're supposed to be able to pull up your car and load out your gear and go. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so then you're kind of one step from a road rage incident with a cab driver <laughs> or an Uber driver, you know. So I don't do that very much. Once in a very, very blue moon. But I have plenty of friends who do, and young people I know who've come to town and are going through that. And, uh, yeah. you know, but in certain ways, as tedious and as goofed up as it is, man, you learn a million songs mm-hmm. really fast. Yes. There's no rehearsal. You're just thrown in with people. 
Yes. And you sink or swim pretty fast and you get good at throwing your gear up there and playing immediately and sounding good right away. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it is in many ways a good professional training ground, but it's tough work by music standards. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. But the, the cost of being the it city, I guess. <laughs> you know, you know, but you know, there's a saying, uh, time spent fishing, if you're a fisherman, is not counted against your life because you're so happy doing it, you know? True. Um, there are difficult aspects about the music business. Uh, you know, say traveling or like playing downtown and schlepping your gear and getting through all that crap. Um, you know, but time spent playing music is not counted against your life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, every time I play, for no matter how much or how little I'm making, I still look around and I go, it is unbelievable. They're giving me money to play this instrument and to play these songs. I mean, just, oh my gosh, you know. And then I go home and I go to my nice house and my family is doing well and my kids are through school. And this happened by virtue of music. What an unbelievable life. Yeah. That's some, um, you know, say it again. I'm crazy lucky. Yes. Yeah. I, f I feel the same way. Yeah. And you should. Yeah. You should. It's, um, it's, it's never, I mean, I talk about this with every guest that's been on this show, but... You know that it's um, there's never you can never exhaust it. There's always more to do. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's fun. You you may reach plateaus where you feel like you're hitting a brick wall and you haven't gotten better or you haven't you're stale or you need some fresh inspiration or um, mm -hmm. but those always if you keep going that you always get past those. Yep. And you always learn something new and there's uh, there's always a challenge that's just waiting for you that's exciting and mm -hmm. fulfilling and and. Um. This made me feel very sad because I have never felt like this. But two years ago, it's Thanksgiving, and I was with, this was a cool Thanksgiving, I'm with my family and my immediate family, children and wife, and three other families on our street. We all went down together down to the Gulf of Mexico uh, on the Florida Panhandle and rented this colossal house on the beach between a total of four households. And it was fantastic. A little cool, but still you're on the beach, you know, and everybody's cooking together in this big, gigantic monstrosity of a guest house that we're in. And I'm walking up from the ocean towards the house and my phone rings. And it's a guy that I played with immediately out of college that I went on the road with this bar band with. And he said to me, and he was, I was just thinking about you, and I decided to call you. I said, well, man, thank you. I said, I'm really grateful. It's great to hear from you. And then he went on to say, he goes, you know, another guy that was in that band with us, and he were talking, and they were reflecting back that that time spent with that band was like the greatest years of their life, which was nice to hear that I was part of the greatest years of their life, but also sad, because I have never felt... You know, even when I've gone through some difficult times, being a musician and providing for a family can be terrifying sometimes. Like, how are you going to pay their tuition? How are we going to make ends meet? Somehow, we always did. There can be some scary moments, you know. Uh, some music business is notoriously unstable. But still, 
I always felt that like wherever I was going at the time, somehow this was great. You know, like I've had many, many fantastic times in my life. I've been so lucky to hang in there and do it. And I felt kind of sad. I was bittersweet when he said that to me, you know, because that was like 35, 40 years ago. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, so I felt nice to be part of some of the best years of his life, but a little sad. It was a moment in time. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. So uh, I think that um, if you can find a way to really hang in there, you do whatever you legally got to do to hold on, you know? Yes. In the end, it's worth it. And that's kind of. Yeah. My story. Yes. Oh, I love that you said that. It's uh, that's um, that's great advice. I, this, I, I hope all my students have listened to every single word that you said, <laughs> <laughs> and I know they haven't. But I've got uh, um, I've got two that I'm definitely going to say. You need to. You've got to listen to this because I know that uh, that it's uh, it has potential to really help them. Because yeah. they ask me questions mm-hmm. that let me know that they want these answers. Right. So no, no forcing. Right. No force feeding them. Right. But um, that's great. Yeah. Well, John, I guess we'll bring this to a close. I've kept you so long, but thank you so much for the, uh, this conversation. Is I'm pretty flattered that anybody wants to hear what I have to say. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so much wisdom here, and I, I just um, hope I can do it justice covering it with them. Um, I want to post um, links to your website. Sure. And is there anything else that people should know about you? Like, do you have dates to, coming up that you're playing? Um, you, or? Well, if you're going out... Um, or so, TV shows to watch? Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> if, you, if, if you watch... Um, uh, if your parents or your mother watches soap operas, I have a lot... We have had over 30 songs on The Young and the Restless. Wow. And there's a TV show uh, on... Um, uh, the Hallmark Channel called Sign Sealed Delivered. And for the first three years, Stevie Wonder's Sign Sealed Delivered was his theme song. And then when they needed a more affordable song, they come to us, the Bargain Basement guys, and um, our song, Come On, Come On, is the theme song to that TV show. Wonderful. Sign Sealed Delivered on the Hallmark Channel. Okay. So. All right. That's a lead so, right there. So check you out on that. And, yeah. And now are you playing anywhere coming up? That- I play with a band, watch for them, called Marky Blue. Okay. And it's a blues, rock, party, dance band. We play a lot of casinos, um, easy gigs. And, uh, and uh, they play a lot of parties. And um, they play festivals where they play their original songs. And then when they play casinos, they play their original songs plus famous covers. And um, okay. it's fun to do. Yeah. And uh, Marky Blue... It's Marky Blue and Rick Latina. They have a great website, too. Okay. And that music's real good. And I'm on some of those records. I'll check that out. Um, yeah. what, which Alabama recordings? Um, I am on The Fans, and I'm on... Uh, uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot here. Yeah, I'm on two Alabama records. Okay. And, I, and I'm also on a cover of Sweet Home Alabama that they did, too. Sweet. And... Um, so I can't think of them right, but there's two two famous Alabama records that I'm on. Okay, and, I'll look that I'll look that up. Then. But if you want to look up, you'll see me looking much much younger. If you go on YouTube and look up Alabama live shows, there are a bunch of YouTube clips us playing award shows and television shows that you can okay. readily find on YouTube. That All I'm right, on. I'll look for some of that too. <laughs> there's a there's a bunch of them, and I have you know a really horrible mullet. 
Um, you'll love it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's all about what you're supposed to dress like that's on, right. <laughs> to look your part in the job. I had platinum <laughs> shoes, a string bolo tie, and a mullet. So guess what decade that was. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm going to let you get out of here, Thank John. You. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, take care and have a happy Thanksgiving. Same to you.